Support for this show comes from Slack. You're a growing business and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens, with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. Hey, this is Scott Galloway, author, professor, entrepreneur, and most importantly, host of the Prop G podcast. We got a special series running on right now called The Future of Work, where I answer all your questions on, surprise, The Future of Work. Questions including, what are we missing when we work remotely? Or how do we handle work-life balance when a major opportunity comes knocking? From the provocative to the technical, we're offering insights you won't want to miss. So tune in to The Future of Work, a PropGPod special sponsored by Canva. You can find it on the PropGPod wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Kara Swisher, editor-at-large of Recode. You may know me as someone who harvests hot takes and grows them into podcasts, but in my spare time, I talk tech, and you're listening to Recode Decode from the Vox Media Podcast Network. Today in the red chair is Sarah Menker, the CEO of Grow Intelligence. Ag tech is a very interesting new, not new area, but an area that people aren't focused on, and we're going to do that today. Sarah, welcome to Recode Decode. Thanks for having me. So we met at, a, at an event, but I, you started talking about ag tech, and something I've been interest very interested in it for a long time. I've I've talked to the head of Land Lakes, all kinds of things, and we've obviously had a lot of the food technology people on the podcast. But the idea of of big tech being pushed up against lots of different areas of industry is really interesting. And agriculture tech to me is super interesting. You started reeling off all kinds of fascinating statistics. Like why is this person who looks like she's stepped like right out of New York City talking to me about agriculture technology? Talk to me about that. Talk, talk to me about how you got there. Well, so I did step out of New York City. Yes, that's what I thought. <laughs> You're so glad. Uh, so I uh, was born and raised in Ethiopia mm-hmm. and I ended up coming to the U.S. for college and then mm-hmm. Started my career in Wall Street, and I became an oil and gas trader. Right. Okay. Which is a very natural thing to do. (laughs) So I was an energy trader, and um, if you remember the financial crisis in 08-09, who doesn't? I, you know, was kind of living in this very polarized world Mm -hmm. where on one end I was going to work every day, and people thought the world was coming to the end, and I was like, well, that world is not really coming to an end. I mean, Morgan I was working at Morgan Stanley at the time. I was like, Mm -hmm. our stock going to zero sucks, but it's not. The end of the world. Right. And the guy next to me at the time actually was buying gold because he thought the world was really oh, right. coming to an end. The preppers. <laughs> and uh, I said, you know, if the world comes to an end, I'd rather like trade a sack of potatoes for a bar of gold. So right, why right. would you not buy land and like just be a farmer? Like right, if right. you truly believe the world's wow. coming to an end. That is so mature. And, um, so I decided to buy land to spite him. Yeah. And then going through this journey of trying to buy cheap agricultural land, which didn't exist in the U.S., it didn't mm-hmm. exist in Brazil, I kind of went back to my roots in, in Africa and said, I'll buy land in Africa because mm-hmm. there's lots of arable land. I have money. We can collect money. Like I can just raise money and land. do this. Anyway, quickly realized that making the economics of farming work, no matter how much capital you had, was actually really difficult. Mm-hmm. So I didn't buy land, or farm land, at least. And did uh, also, What did you think was so difficult? I mean, it is difficult. I think farmers are our first entrepreneur. We used to have a very entrepreneurial culture because farmers had to 
be very entrepreneurial, whether it was the weather, whether it was what to grow, whether it was prices. It was such an entrepreneurial job, and it's not necessarily thought of that way. They still are. Yeah, they still uh, are. It's absolutely. one of the hardest jobs in the world. Part of why it's really difficult to make the economics work, and, and by the way, it's the same in the U.S., it's just that the government subsidizes it. Mm-hmm. But it's essentially that, you know, by the time you get land and say it's cheap, in that case, it was actually like a dollar an acre. Mm-hmm. But you realize I have to level the land. Well, I have to build out the roads myself. I need to build out my own infrastructure. Oh, I need power. Mm-hmm. Um, where do I get my crop insurance? Who's my banker? By the time you realize what that true cost of production is, you're basically better off buying land in the Midwest. Right, right. So, you know, Midwest is like ten, eleven, twelve thousand dollars an acre versus a dollar an acre. Mm-hmm. It's still kind of not really a real arbitrage. And mm-hmm. so to me, that became kind of like this fascination turned mm-hmm. complete obsession over another four years. And then at some point I was like, you know what? I just I had nothing left in me to continue being uh, an energy trader. But I was just like completely obsessed with how can you have a system that's so broken mm-hmm. and how do you fix it? And I had seen in the energy markets actually how information and data had truly transformed the basically flow of capital mm-hmm. to make it. A, so much more efficient, B, make markets significantly less volatile than mm-hmm. they were, and C, make it much more longer term, right. which is kind of what you need to make markets work. Sure. Agriculture has none of it. Mm-hmm. And so to me, I said, I'm not going to be a farmer, uh, but I need to f- figure out a way to fix the system. And to fix a system, you first need to understand it. Mm-hmm. And I quickly realized nobody understands the mm-hmm. system. Like mm-hmm. we're all talking about it, but there was no basis for understanding it because the data had not been organized. Right. And that's kind of where the idea for growth intelligence uh, came from. I mean, the data is all over the place, just like in a lot, like in healthcare. And there's all there's a lot of sectors that are like that. It's that, very much that. Mm-hmm. And so that's really what we did is, is we built a platform that ingests very large, very disparate data sets that come in multiple formats and, and languages because agriculture is global mm-hmm. and each country tends to Actually, report in its local language. At least the best data for that for that right. country. Um, so it's it's and the formatting is from like the 1970s. Mm-hmm. It's, I mean, healthcare is like way advanced right, compared to agriculture. Yeah, yeah. I know, but agriculture is way behind. And again, when we think of agriculture, oftentimes people are thinking of like corn and soybean farmers, but it's also like black pepper and vanilla and blueberries and raspberries. And so it's like so diverse in terms of what it represents. Mm-hmm. It's highly fragmented on the supply side because you can have a half acre farmer or a 50,000 acre farmer. Mm -hmm. And then demand kind of runs down to like people like you and I and the Mm -hmm. cup of coffee I'm having this morning. And so how do you essentially model a real world system that's incredibly complex and has been around for 12,000 years? So what people need and what people need to grow and how they grow and how you get them to eat things they wouldn't necessarily. More importantly, like what is growing where and when and how much of it and what's at risk and Mm -hmm. what needs to go where? I mean, just the even like basic question of, you know, how much wheat is Russia producing this year mm-hmm. is actually not a simple question to like answer as most people think right. it is. Right. You'd imagine Russia would have that. Data. And so and what w- what we had to do is first go out and essentially, like I said, harvest all of this data. And we, we designed an ontology that essentially normalizes all of it. Mm-hmm. And then we realized that there were also data gaps. So we started using 
that data itself to generate new data. So I we're see. essentially using AI to organize the data, but mm -hmm. we're also then using it to generate new types of data. So mm -hmm. we are using it to generate data around what crops are grown where. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of countries don't report that, so right. we look at image classification and look at satellite imagery around the world and mm -hmm. classify that. Right. And we combine that with more of the macroeconomic data that comes out to start mm -hmm. kind of mapping out that supply and demand picture. And the point, so I want to get into this in much more detail, but the point being they don't know what they're doing at all. And people are sort of acting sort of anecdotally almost, right, I guess? Pretty much. And yeah. and, and actually, the, you know, a very big strategic decision we made was we don't sell anything to farmers. Mm -hmm. We actually don't work with farmers because we realized that the system around the farmer is so inefficient, mm -hmm. but it has been so arrogant in assuming it knows mm -hmm. <laughs> that – there's a huge amount of misinformation around it. So whether you are selling products to farmers, so think of that as input companies or mm -hmm. capital providers like mm -hmm. banks or insurance, or you're buying from farmers like your CPG companies or your retailers, there actually has never been a baseline understanding of agriculture that actually allows the transfer of risk to occur. Mm -hmm. And the farmer ends up getting hurt in this process because right. they're kind of caught in the middle. Mm -hmm. And so for, for, for us, it was how do we fix the system around the farm? Mm -hmm. Because then the farmer can truly start to benefit because you start to drive down essentially the cost of capital. You drive down volatility. Mm -hmm. You you. you fix kind of what is fundamentally wrong. So who wrong. do you work for then? We just It's just intelligence for whom? So think of anyone who sells anything into farms. So seed, crop protection, fertilizer, banks, insurance, then intermediaries. Intermediaries are basically traders. So we mm -hmm. work with hedge funds and we work with kind of your physical traders that are moving stuff around the world. And then buyers. So the buyers tend to be basically your consumer goods, like uh, companies, right, as well as your retailers anything. of like fresh produce, mm -hmm. um, etc. And then we work a lot with the public sector as well. So we work with foundations, we work with academia, we actually do a lot of joint R&D research with academic institutions. Mm -hmm. So we've taken a, a slightly different approach, but, but essentially saying if you don't get this ecosystem, system of players to start communicating in, in some type of way that mm -hmm. makes sense and get them to agree, you don't fix it. And the fix, fixing you're trying to do is what? To bring down, you said bring down prices, bring down costs. It's bring down the cost of capital, right? Mm -hmm. Let me give you a statistic. Okay. 63%. I love your agriculture statistic. <laughs> this is the best dinner I ever had, by the way. 63% of the African population mm -hmm. is involved in farming. Mm -hmm. Less than 1% of outstanding bank loans have anything to do Whoa. with the agricultural market. That's crazy. Take a place like the U.S., mm -hmm. the top 30 banks combined, mm -hmm. the J.P. Morgans, et cetera, th top 30 combined have an agricultural portfolio exposure of less than $20 billion a year. Whoa. And to me, if you cannot fix capital markets around agriculture, you do not fix the system. You don't lead to increased productivity. Because right. if you, you can't increase innovate. productivity, but it costs a lot to do so, then you don't fix the problem because right. you still have, right. uh, you know. Uh, so to me, it's like, how do you reduce the cost of access to capital? Mm -hmm. How do you make that by more farmers. efficiently? By farmers. And, mm -hmm. and, and really by the system too, right? Because mm -hmm. if you can start to lend better to companies that are interacting with farmers and their cost of capital is managed, they don't mm -hmm. transfer that onto the farmer, I right? See. There's this mm -hmm. like, it just, there's like this ripple effect that occurs. Mm -hmm. And to basically model risk, mm -hmm. you need data. Right, exactly. And the amount of data that you need when it comes to modeling agriculture is just mm -hmm. at a completely different level because, mm -hmm. you know, if you take something as simple as pigs in China, mm -hmm. It's a big Let's topic right now. Let's okay. talk about pigs in China. Mm -hmm. uh, China produces 60% of the world's pork. 
it's also the largest consumer of pork yeah. per capita in the world. Right. Uh, well, this year there's African swine fever, um, mm-hmm. which is basically a disease that's killing off the pig herd. That's right. Estimation is as about 30 percent mm-hmm. of pigs in China could be are already gone and up to 50 percent. Some are forecasting up to 50 percent will be mm-hmm. gone by 2020. There's not enough pigs in the world mm-hmm. <laughs> to make up for that shortfall unless right. people basically start making more pigs. Making more pigs. Well, pigs eat soybeans. Mm-hmm. Well, soybeans are at the heart of the U.S.-China trade war. Mm-hmm. Soybeans are also at the heart of China's trade with Brazil. So now you start to say, okay, how does this play out with the trade war? How does this play out with Brazil's relationship? Well, if the Chinese don't eat pigs, do they eat chickens? Mm-hmm. Well, if they eat chicken, chicken don't eat Soybeans. So you're now thinking of other feedstock. Where are they getting that from? So you basically end up in this really like entangled web of Mm -hmm. asking a series of nested questions Mm -hmm. that you have to have answers to. So the predictive AI you have to have, you know, around that is incredibly like complex. complex. And until you can start to play that out Mm -hmm. and automate that knowledge, we have no hope. They're just guessing. And then the soybean farmers are caught without knowing Essentially. What they're going to do or switching crops. Switching. Yeah. So you can switch crops. You can also switch the use of the crop, right? So Mm -hmm. not, you know, again, most people don't realize 40% of corn produced in the U.S. is not consumed by humans. It's ethanol. I did know that. (laughs) You're driving it in your car. Yeah. 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 (laughs) And so there's there's just all sorts of types of switching that can occur either to other crops. Um, There can be new trade deals that occur with other regions that might Mm -hmm. need that crop. You know, there's all sorts of options. Right. But you need to know what these options are. I want to get more detail of all these kind of details, but why is that? Here is a an industry that's critical to the survival of the human race, which has gotten smaller and smaller in a lot of ways. Fewer and fewer people are doing it. Even if it's sixty some percent in Africa, it's I forget the number. I remember the number in the US. One point five percent. Right. It used to be half, right? Or something like that. Or more perhaps. Um, why is that? Because it it's it's a data filled industry, like it's full of data, including weather, including everything. Every aspect of it is data filled. It's data filled, but uh, you know, there's two things to keep in mind. A ton of the data does sit in the public domain, so mm-hmm. most of the data is collected by public institutions that collect it for one reason or another, mm-hmm. but have no incentive to organize it. Right. So, I mean, some of the worst data we deal with is, you know, if you look at data that comes out of India, mm-hmm. it's in PDF files. They've scanned images on top of them. And they have handwriting plus typed up text, mm-hmm. and they move the tables around from month to month. Right, right. And you do this month after month, year after year, and you're trying to understand mm-hmm. you know, 30, 40, 50 years of history. It becomes a really kind of messy process. And mm-hmm. so it's that the industry as a whole doesn't exist as an industry, mm-hmm. and there is not a single body that collects that data. So there's been a lot of collection. It's just badly collected. The earliest, uh, I think, data point that we have in our platform today is in the 1860s. Mm-hmm. Which, what is it? Weather so station. Okay. Uh, early weather stations. And Actually, technically, the very, very first one is 1701, but we don't have the actual data point. But that's okay. a, a station in Berlin. And saying <laughs> what, was it, what, what the weather was. Yeah, exactly. Right? We're looking at everything from, like, Earth, mm-hmm. which is climate, environment, soil, right. et cetera, right. to markets, which has right. to do with, you know, commodity exchanges mm-hmm. and demographics and, and kind of more socioeconomic data. Mm-hmm. And you're merging all of that together. Mm-hmm. And a lot of that, too, like a lot of the socioeconomic data at a global scale has been collected at least going back to the 1950s. Right. So they're collecting the data. You know, our government does that. And collects in, Every government does right, that. Right. Every government collects, especially, well, they collect all kinds of data, but farming data. But then 
They don't classify it the same way. Even within the same government, Mm -hmm. you have different classification systems. You have different definitions. So give me an example of the U.S. government. Who collects the data? U.S. Department of Agriculture. Right. But U.S. Department of Agriculture, we think of as a department, Mm -hmm. but it's not a department. Mm -hmm. Within the USDA, you have hundreds of different databases. Right. And every single one of them is structured differently. Every single one of them is organized differently. Mm -hmm. And every single one of them has a different set of definitions and owners. And so now take that, multiply it by the number of countries in the world. Mm And then the number of agencies that also, because the USDA is not our only source of data in the U.S., we're also collecting it from all the industry associations that specialize in a particular crop. Or 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 tomatoes. Exactly. You have like, you know, the avocado associations Mm -hmm. and the strawberry associations. And that data might not be correct, right? So that's a very good point. All right. We're going to get to that in a minute. (laughs) We're here with a riveting conversation with Sarah Menker. She's the CEO of Grow Intelligence, which uses big data and predictive analytics to help farmers farm better. When we get back, we'll talk more about that and sort of where technology fits into the equation. Support for this show comes from Slack. You're a growing business and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens, with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. Hey, this is Scott Galloway, author, professor, entrepreneur, and most importantly, host of the Prop G podcast. We got a special series running on right now called The Future of Work, where I answer all your questions on, surprise, The Future of Work. Questions including, what are we missing when we work remotely? Or how do we handle work-life balance when a major opportunity comes knocking? From the provocative to the technical, we're offering insights you won't want to miss. So tune in to The Future of Work, a PropGPod special sponsored by Canva. You can find it on the PropGPod wherever you get your podcasts. We're here with Sarah Menker. She's the CEO of Grow Intelligence. It's a fascinating company that uses big data and predictive analytics around farming. I'm just going to use the U.S. as an example that they collect this data. Everybody collects it everywhere, and it sits there in different places. Who does it well? Who does a good job now of collecting data? And then I want to get into what's the best way to do this going forward. Who does it well? No one. No one. (laughs) I'm thinking I mean, the Norwegians. <laughs> I was thinking maybe the Norwegians. Actually, you the know, da- Denmark. U.S. In terms of standards, I mean, USDA is the gold standard. Uh-huh. But let's just say it's not the standard we want. <laughs> right. So right. it's it's the best. So of what give we an explanation of how the USDA would collect data, like in different parts. Gosh, it could be surveys. Mm-hmm. So they're constantly surveying farmers, mm-hmm. and then you're getting these survey results that you're having to interpret. They get what do they data. Ask? What do they- They could be asked. um, So there's one thing called, like, for example, the objective yield survey, which is like they basically go out and tell, ask a bunch of farmers, like, what's the yield on your farm this season? Mm -hmm. And somehow all of that gets mixed in Mm -hmm. and then bundled into a final number that they release. But nobody actually knows what the inputs are. And and Mm -hmm. this has actually been one of our biggest 
things that we've been pushing in the industry is transparency. Mm -hmm. There's a huge lack of transparency even amongst government agencies mm -hmm. in terms of how data is collected and how they generate the final numbers. Right. And one of the things that we've set out to do in, in, in challenging this is actually we've built predictive models mm -hmm. that actually are forecasting those same numbers that these agencies are reporting. Okay. And these are very kind of complex uh, machine learning models mm -hmm. that we have completely opened. Mm -hmm. And so you, we basically published all the methodology. Mm -hmm. We've provided all the inputs into the models and gone out to the world and say, hey, if a private company can go out and essentially start to provide some of this stuff as a public good, I think we need to start having conversations with governments about how they are coming up with their estimates because right. we need to be able to reproduce results. And right, right now we can't right. reproduce so, results. So they, but that's because they've been doing it this way forever. Like presumably that's why. And the whole government, the way it does data is another, that's a. <laughs> like I said, every government. I mean, and and this is, to for us, it's, 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 when you're in the business of a, you know, trying to get to a truth, mm -hmm. which is what we're trying to, mm -hmm. uh, and then B, when you're in that process discovering where there are gaps and you are generating a new truth, mm -hmm. transparency becomes your own. So what friend. are the inputs? So where do you get the inputs? So, well, this is, I mean, where quality of data comes in right, exactly. as, as something really important. You know, crap someone, in, crap out, I guess. Exactly, right? Like, would you rather have the world's most complex algorithm with crappy data or the dumbest algorithm with really good data? I the take first the one is policing data, for example. <laughs> but go ahead. I, I'm, on a, I'm on a, like, a, I just am like, why are you using this data at all? It's so bad. It's such a bad, like, what's the point? Exactly. So, yeah. in, in, and in our case, we care a lot about getting and having the data well organized and having very high quality data. Mm -hmm. And so, how we generate it is that, um, let me give you a, a real life example. Okay, please. U.S. government, at the end of every season, releases maps that show where every crop across the U.S. was grown. Mm -hmm. Argentina does not. Russia does not. I mean, most places in the world don't, basically. Mm -hmm. So we can then build an algorithm that says, oh, we want to classify where all the corn fields are and all the soybean fields are in the U.S. Mm -hmm. We can ground truth it using the data that gets released at the end of a season. Mm -hmm. We train the models off of that. And then essentially when we start to apply, I mean, corn looks the same everywhere in the world. Right, Soybeans right. look the same everywhere in the world. Mm -hmm. We start to build these masks at a 30-meter resolution in South America. So you take pictures. Sea region. Right. Yeah, so we, we take, we're taking pictures that come mm -hmm. from the European Space Agency mm -hmm. and classifying it 30 meters at a time for the world. Mm -hmm. And there you're g literally generating new forms of data, mm -hmm. but that data would not exist had you not trained it on good data that came from a, some other region in the world. Right, okay. Oh, that's fascinating. Um, so that's like one example. Mm -hmm. The other is you're also, you know, when you have one measure, so say the supply of wheat mm -hmm. in India, mm -hmm. you can have like 10 sources that report that number. Your challenge then becomes which number is the best number, right? So right. If, you th if you think of what Google did, which is like you can, you can do a search and it will give you a bunch of search results, but they're not ranked by quality of information. Mm -hmm. We've developed a ranking methodology that actually ranks based off quality of source. Mm -hmm. And the way that we get to the quality of source is we triangulate all the other data that could exist that's related to that right. to get to what seems objectively closest to the truth. Mm -hmm. And so there's so many kind of layers of, of complexity. I mean, at this mm -hmm. point, our dictionary is classifying over 55 million agricultural terms around the world. Wow. Um, we're translating from about 15 different languages, mm -hmm. and we're processing north of 700 trillion points a day. Wow. Okay, right? so, so it's just a massive system. So so talk about how it helps that system, because I, I want people to understand on a basic level why it's important to have this, because it gives data. You're not helping farmers figure out what to plant. 
We're, what kind of help do farmers have in that? They have lots of help. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, there's tons of kind of technologies that have emerged. Mm-hmm. And particularly, I think all the companies selling products to farmers right now, frankly, have tools mm-hmm. that are telling them, you know, this is what you should plant. And that's called precision farming. Mm-hmm. So that's a very specific set of decisions that ha- tend to be think of them as like hyper localized. Right. Because right. you're a farmer. You're thinking mm-hmm. of every half acre plot you're dealing with. Sure. Um, what we're thinking of is how does the system as a whole work mm-hmm. and how does that tiny plot relate to the rest of the world right, in that it, system. It, it, it. Um, but there's tons of products out there that are owned both by like Lando Lakes has a you know a version mm-hmm. of that. All the uh, seed companies have some products. The right. equipment companies have products. And so there's and then there's independent companies that have emerged that most of them get acquired. But, you know, the, are they always right? See, could you provide data? It's like that. That's not good advice to give these you farmers. Know, the science has gotten quite good mm-hmm. at being able to optimize because that becomes like a physiology problem with soil and, with soil and your water. You know, and, and, and that's why it's called precision agriculture because mm-hmm. you're really taking very specific information at, at a super micro level mm-hmm. and optimizing for that. And that is a science problem that we have figured out. Mm-hmm. So it's a, how do you deploy that at scale? How do you make it cheaper? How do you make it work? Right now, that technology mm-hmm. tends to work only for really big farms. How do you transfer that technology to work for smaller farms? Because right. a lot of that is embedded in larger equipment. So mm-hmm. if you have a two-acre farm or a 10-acre farm, you can't do are, it. One of the things I heard, weirdly enough, I heard it last night about someone putting um, a sensor on a cow, like putting sensors on everything. Is that data that you would be inter- putting? There, you know, I, I know G was talking about putting sensors on engines that they make for tractors or tractor companies, they they kind of tout that idea of constant streams of data about everything. How would you use that? So that's just another input. uh, Mm -hmm. And depending on what those sensors capture, I mean, that's no different from weather stations, which are, you know, have a ton of different sensors. It's no different than satellites that are instrumented in particular ways. You know, and and so our science team, our geospatial team, for example, knows every satellite in orbit and what instruments it has Mm -hmm. to know what variables we can capture and translate from Mm -hmm. that. Right. So not every satellite can give you temperature. How how would that be useful to you to have a sensor on a cow? Like this, it's just I just hear a lot of this and I'm like, why do they want to have that? What is? Well, with cow, it's a lot about feeding and 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 location and And location. Mm -hmm. Uh, But it's also I mean, it is also just about maintaining like the cow's body, essentially. Um, And so think of that as the precision farming equivalent for the cow. Right, right. right. (laughs) For managing each cow, one cow at a time. Mm -hmm. Um, Can you optimize your, your milk output and minimize your cost of inputs, right? Mm -hmm. That's, I mean, dairy farmers are constantly struggling. So if you can solve that problem, Mm -hmm. that's pretty big. Mm -hmm. So that type of data for us is just another signal that we could use and and think of it as maybe we don't even use any of the data that the sensors are capturing, but we just use the location and then we can do counts of how many cows there are. Right, got it, got it. And that like gives you some piece of information. Right. I mean, we're constantly, we're, you know, kind of like... Data freaks in the sense that we uh-huh. take pretty You'll much take anything. anything. We'll take anything and everything. <laughs> What's missing? What What do you need more data on when it relates to farming? Uh, I think oh, the hardest data to understand is actually data related to demand. Mm-hmm. Demand data is really complicated, and demand modeling is really complicated because you're, right. you're modeling human behavior. Right. You're modeling human behavior. You're modeling 
culture, mm-hmm. uh, societal trends, mm-hmm. things that are so much more kind of nuanced, right? right. So, you know, something you always hear is like, oh, as the world gets richer, people are going to eat more meat. Yeah, that's an old... Well, that's not necessarily true everywhere in the world. Mm-hmm. It's not true in India mm-hmm. because they just don't eat that much meat. Right, in India. right. So when you get wealthier in India, you drink more milk. Right. Um, you know, like, right. so what are kind of these underlying metrics that you use for modeling demand? So mm-hmm. we've had to be, I think, the most creative when it comes to understanding Give me an human example. behavior and demand. Forecasting demand of meat mm-hmm. every month. It's one of the hardest hardest problems mm-hmm. there is out there and it's because explain why it's so hard uh, it's hard because again it's tied to uh, data that is harder to come across so mm-hmm. the macroeconomic data or demand data tends to be almost too macro mm-hmm. and you're trying to model things at a micro level right, right? so it's just there's a lot of missing data mm-hmm. so you're then taking when you're modeling this out Instead of saying, um, so when we're modeling supply, let me give you a supply problem versus Mm -hmm. a demand problem. When we're modeling the supply of corn, Mm -hmm. the number of features we use in a model, meaning how many variables we use, is quite limited on a relative basis. And Mm -hmm. how many we test is also relatively limited Mm -hmm. because plant science has already told us so much about how corn grows that we're somewhat constrained to it. Mm -hmm. When we started building our first beef demand model, Uh, I think we put in 350 features <laughs> to try and find something, anything that works. We ended up with about 35, mm-hmm. but that's still, you know, five versus 35. And right. so you're you're just you're, you're kind of you know searching for a needle in a haystack because there isn't enough, and so you're kind of taking everything and then trying to extract what could be something that you haven't So no one's keeping track of. Yeah, it's really hard to keep track of. Because individual restaurants or individual sellers or buyers. Well, supermarkets would have. Supermarkets have some data, but Mm -hmm. supermarkets are not representative of a global. So so our challenge is always, how do you do this at global scale? Global scale. And that's where it starts. It's fun and exciting, and nobody's ever done it, and nobody's ever done it for a reason. Sometimes I feel like we're completely nuts. Butchers in Japan or wherever, however (laughs) people, because people do get buy in different ways. And then it's not just meat. Mm -hmm. Do you need to get information on cuts of meat? And then when you start to get cuts of meat, you know, complete elasticity Mm -hmm. in terms of a demand for different cuts depending Mm -hmm. on different times. And you'll see that even in like places like the U.S. during bad economic times. It's not people eat less meat. They just eat cheaper cuts of meat. Right, right. Uh, You know, so you're like, oh, gosh, looking at a metric that just says this is total beef demand is not even useful to my life. Right, right. So so much more nuance. So you start getting into the weeds of the details Mm -hmm. and and ultimately – you know, you start to get into varieties and size. I mean, fruits and vegetables are another nightmare to oh, work tell with. tell me about fruits and vegetables. <laughs> Why are fruits and vegetables a nightmare, Sarah? They are a nightmare. Yeah. Uh, highly perishable. Yeah. Not commoditized. Mm-hmm. So therefore, there aren't formal marketplaces and exchanges where you can basically transfer risk. So because corn, yeah, like corn is traded on the CME. So at the end of the day, you get a price and it's mm-hmm. a big market and everything else. All of these are super niche markets where there are mm-hmm. tons and tons of private transactions. Right. And they're all produced at much smaller scale. And because you can't store them, there's just inherently so much more volatility. Right, you can't count them. Right. Yeah, you don't it's harder to you, – even if you count them, like, you know, worst case scenario of a price of some product that is commoditized is too low. You put it in storage and mm-hmm. then you take it out of storage and sell it when prices are high enough. Mm-hmm. There's no doing that in lettuce. Right. You sell it or you sell it. Right, right, right. <laughs> And so that, as a result, just the, the, the volatility in – 
in fresh produce markets is mm-hmm. just significantly higher. Right. So you don't know why things are expensive. Like every now and then you get it. Oh, avocados are going to be more expensive because of well, rain. We know why avocados are expensive. Right. Because 90% of them come from Mexico. Right. So every time there's, you know, potential shutdown of a border or a trade war. Right. Avocado prices go up. All right. We will get into that next with Sarah Menker. She is the hyper-intelligent CEO of Grow Intelligence, and she loves avocado data. Uh, when we get back, we're going to talk about more of what we can do to help feed more people and try to get make the system more seamless and transparent when we get back. We're here with Sarah Menker. She's the CEO of Grow Intelligence, which is a company that does uh, big data and predictive analytics uh, to help well, I don't know farmers farm better. How do you explain? Like, Yeah, it's, it's, we use data and predictive analytics mm-hmm. to actually help businesses in agriculture make more efficient decisions. Decisions, which yeah. they're making almost anecdotally in many, in many in cases. Many case. In many cases. So talk about where we're going with this. Like what, what needs to happen to bring this industry, which is so critical to survival of the human race, into a more, you know, we do probably, I'm guessing Tinder is more has more information than we have about farming, right? About people's behavior. Well, I think we're, we're building that, right? right. And, and so if you think of consumer apps, mm-hmm. the way that they get the data is that they're taking data from their users. Right. And then they're getting constant inputs. Yeah, they're commercializing that. Mm-hmm. In our case, in some ways, we're lucky because a ton of the data is already out there and we're just mm-hmm. organizing it. So right. we're not taking anyone's data, mm-hmm. but we are generating new forms of data using old forms of data. Right, you're using it in restate. And, and we've, what we've built is, is basically data infrastructure mm-hmm. and data science infrastructure. You know, I was listening to one of your interviews with with Kai Fuli, uh-huh. and he was talking about the second wave of AI being business AI. Right. Exactly. Well, to get any of that to work, mm-hmm. you need good data. Right. And business AI cannot function in an agriculture with just the data that each business has of its own businesses. Right. Because you it's need collective. contextual right. data. Right. Yeah. And so we're that contextual data layer that mm-hmm. becomes necessary for kind of that second wave of these businesses to, to kind of move forward. Mm-hmm. And so to me, that's in some ways, that's what's exciting about it is that, you know, organizations have their own data. We don't take any company data. But what we do do is we go into the companies and give them this data and data science and machine learning infrastructure that they merge with their data to kind of take things so to the next like level. Stone soup, right? Because exactly. you get that too, right? Because <laughs> you get their data. So when these trade wars happen, and a lot, a lot of them are about farming, and, and there's lots of goods, they're about lots of goods, but it, it focuses on farming a lot of the time. When you see that, what happens when you have those situations? Um, markets go crazy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, you know, I got that. Uh, <laughs> avocados, as, as I mentioned earlier, um, you know, last time there was talk of, of shutting down a border, 24 hours, avocado prices were up 35%, 48 hours, they were up 60%. Because uh, of the anticipation. Just the anticipation. But also, you know, if you think of avocados, 90% of avocados come from Mexico into mm-hmm. the U.S. Mm-hmm. And Americans eat avocados, uh, you know, it used to be that people only ate avocados on particular occasions. And Mm -hmm. there's like five holidays where Mm -hmm. actually still about a third of avocados are consumed in the Mm -hmm. U.S., which is um, Fourth of July, Cinco de Mayo, uh, St. Patrick's Day. What? (laughs) Super Bowl. Okay. Oh. Guac. And uh, Labor Day. Okay, guac. Guac, guac. guac. <laughs> exactly. Right. It's, not the, it's not the fancy sliced avocados. Right, right. But anyway, that means that people actually buy tons of avocados. Like all the retailers buy them and store them in advance in anticipation because your avocado sales are kind right. of cyclical. Mm-hmm. And so when you have something happen like that just before Cinco de Mayo, 
what happens? Everybody rushes to buy. Right. Um, and that's what drives prices up, right? Mm-hmm. Um, again, we have U.S.-China trade war. That's much more about soybeans. And, mm-hmm. and in that case, you know, it's essentially the minute China stops buying soybeans from the U.S. I mean, the trade war is not about soybeans, but mm-hmm. it impacts the soybean sure. market in the U.S. Sure. And the U.S. exports $12.5 billion of soybeans a year. The government came up with a solution, which is just pay farmers. Right. And Which is not a solution. Well, it's not a long-term solution. Right. And the, the big risk there becomes if China replaces its soybean demand by just going to Brazil and investing right. more in Brazil, right. what That's happens? exactly where it's going to you know, to the U.S. farmer. And I think there's some big kind of strategic uh, questions that Mm -hmm. need to be asked. Yeah, I think I was just talking about that with around computer stuff is what if, you know, with Huawei and everything, if they replace the vendor, you have to replace the vendor with someone else. You that's that business is completely lost versus not. When you think about the world food economy, what are some of the important trends that you see from the data? What are you when you look at all of it? I mean, one is I, I've been saying this to the team recently, which is, you know, I can't tell if the world is just so much more messed up today mm-hmm. or we can see so much more of it I because we have second. so much data. I just was talking about you know, and, and I think it's the second, mm-hmm. right? Um, but there are some things that are happening more frequently. Mm-hmm. One is extreme climate events. Right. So climate shocks are, whether it's droughts or floods, are impacting mm-hmm. the world in a much more frequent level mm-hmm. continuously. Right. So that means actually our understanding of the system as a whole needs to definitely go up a notch mm-hmm. as a result of that. So climate shocks are huge. Climate shocks are actually tied to disease. Mm-hmm. So animal disease and plant disease is very much tied to climate. Mm-hmm. So that means now you have disease risk that looks very different. So mm-hmm. tracking disease and the spread of disease becomes quite critical. Mm-hmm. So those two are, are, are Which pretty is data large. that you provide to disease. Exactly. You yeah. have to model disease risk to be able mm-hmm. to forecast supply. We, we work with very weird stuff sometimes. <laughs> I, was like, I was like, yes, I do work with plant diseases and animal yes. diseases. Right. Um, the third big trend is is a trend towards people asking questions around redefining food security to be around diversification versus mm-hmm. uh, very country-to-country dependent trade. Right. So if you look at the world food system today, it's pretty much there are countries that are net Avocado. importers right. and there are countries that are net exporters of mm-hmm. just food and calories mm-hmm. as a whole. Mm-hmm. And so far, it's just been the U.S., and now South America that have been kind of the emergent net exporters to the right. rest of the world, to right. Asia, to Africa, right. et cetera. What has started to happen is you've now have have a bigger net exporters emerging, namely the Black Sea region. So mm-hmm. you have Russia and Ukraine becoming very dominant forces in agriculture. So the agricultural trade system will start to look different. Um, it will start to look different because it will it will right. be people will tra- start to trade with a, a more diverse set of trading partners. Right. Diversify your risk right, sure. in case one shuts down on you. But B, people will also start trading closer, meaning mm-hmm. you don't have to ship everything, you know, across multiple oceans right. yeah. <laughs> to, to get it what where it What does that do for, because we're all so obsessed with the U.S. here in the U.S., um, what does that do to the U.S. farming market? Like, what, when these, when you start to collect these data points and point them out, what do you do 
I mean, or is it just a secular shift that is just the way other secular shifts? Happen? It's it's a secular shift, like other mm-hmm. secular shifts. I mean, I think w- there will be important questions that the U.S. farmer will be faced with, and mm-hmm. I think there will be in questions important questions that the U.S. government will be f- faced with. Because we want to remain a food exporter. It, do you want to remain a food exporter? But which it will. Mm-hmm. But it's what kind of food exporter? Mm-hmm. What's the role of again? Government heavily, heavily backs the U.S. agricultural sector. Mm-hmm. It's not one that is standing on its own because mm-hmm. it's highly commercial. It's one that's standing up because it's highly backed by government post-Great Depression. So Mm -hmm. the system that was put in place right after the Great Depression is the system that we use today. Right. Does it have to be that system? No. In fact, you need to completely re-architect it. So how would you do that? Um, You need to make the system commercial. You need to have a world where the top 30 banks have more than $20 billion of exposure to agriculture. Right, right. And to me, you don't— So they're lending to promote innovation and new— Yeah, like where—it's not to say the government doesn't play a role. It's like how do you use that money to drive the innovation necessary Mm -hmm. to start transforming the food system in in a much more kind of core and fundamental way? And how do Mm -hmm. you reassess what that system looks like? People want to eat healthier. People want to eat, you know, more greens. Uh, There's like, you know— big dietary shifts that are also mm-hmm. like thematically starting to occur. Like, How do you get ahead me, of that? But yeah, all those things. How do you look at those things? So that's a like uh, I I've just <laughs> noticed they're everywhere now. They're in that was at Ben's Chili Bowl in Washington DC and had like, a would you Beyond like meat chili Well, they had both Beyond Meat and Impossible Burger and they were delicious. But I was sort of like what is it doing here? Like it was <laughs> you know, their taste has gotten significantly better over yes. the years. Yes. I will say that. I, t- I taste all of them once a year. Uh-huh. I-, I love meat, unfortunately. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I grew up Many in Ethiopia. Do. I'm like, you know, it's yeah. like, but you know, I think their role is going to still way, be wonderful vegetable dishes. Yes. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> we yes. do. We're vegans twice a week. So yeah. I think that helps. Yeah. Um, but I think um, those, those types of products work well for, you know, High paying consumers. Um, They're impacting a particular demographic. Yeah. And, you know, there's a lot of conversations around the rise of veganism, for example. Mm -hmm. And we looked at the data and I had to send it to someone who got very disappointed because she was going out to like advocate for veganism and how there are more vegans in the world. And I said, well, if you look at the per capita consumption numbers, it actually just tells you that we're eating less beef, Mm -hmm. but eating more chicken. Right. (laughs) Like people are substituting (laughs) one form of meat for another form of meat. Unfortunately, that's substituting for yeah. vegetables just yet. You know, I always feel like <laughs> vegans are 100% right, but I they annoy me. And I'm like, oh, you're right. You know, when you read any of it, you're like, correct, you are. But th- I, I do think the idea of of substituting me, these these trends are will trickle down to other areas. They all do. All these food trends that start at the high level tend to, you know, who was eating yogurt for until they everybody was eating yogurt kind of thing. Yeah, I mean, they they will trickle down, but they won't do it at the expense of meat that most right. people kind of yes, expect. And and part of it is because, again, when you think of it globally, you know, your per capita consumption of meat in so many parts of the world is so low. It people is. are still consuming, you know, a couple of kilograms of meat a, a year. Right. And, and in others, your people are doing, you know, too. 30 kilograms. Right. Uh, and so there's just so much more upside there because, mm-hmm. again, this is where I said modeling demand is more difficult because right. – Culture. Like, how do you shift culture? How do you tell an African that serving vegetables is a sign of wealth? Right. No. No. Right. (laughs) More meat you serve is the more wealth you show. Exactly. Which is fascinating. (laughs) And then the more developed world is shifting the other way that meat is like, well, you know, oyster. I'm always fascinated with oysters. I love oysters. I don't know if you know, but I'm always like, it used to be, we were on the, we were at beaches down in Britain and they were covered with oyster shells. It's because it was the food for the poor. 
that it was the shitty food, and and now and then it became the wealthy food. It's just a very. I just love watching food trends and how they how they shift and move. What role would technology play besides beyond data in the food economy? It's you know people there's there's things like Beyond Meat. There's all kinds of investments being made in food distribution and all and stuff like that. But as you say, it's on the high end as at the beginning. What what needs to happen from a technology perspective? Well, I think the first thing that needs to happen is that people need to start with a global perspective. So mm-hmm. there's this idea oftentimes when tech companies start that let me just figure out this this local problem mm-hmm. and then I can just scale it globally. And right. there's an assumption that yeah, that absolutely. idea will just automatically scale globally. Mm-hmm. I think that needs to change. Mm-hmm. And and as a company, we have done that very intentionally from day one. Mm-hmm. So we're about 70 people now. Um one in three people is of a different ethnicity or nationality in the mm-hmm. company. Oh, wow. You're diverse and realize <laughs> and, how important that is. But, Gosh. you know, <laughs> we have about 28 different disciplines. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And the reality is that if you are modeling, and, uh, you know, every tech company is an AI company nowadays, right. uh, whether that's right or wrong. Right. But it, it's like if you're building an AI to to address a problem, mm-hmm. that AI has to represent the world that it Absolutely. is Absolutely. Thank you for saying that. And so to me, You now win the best person I know this year. <laughs> and so to me, it's, it's that if we don't start changing our frame of mind from the day we start these companies. Or making products, yep. In the way that we're making products. And we say, if, I'm, if I truly have global ambition, I can start local. Mm-hmm. My design process from day one has to be built around that ambition. Right. Otherwise, you just go completely wrong. Right, absolutely. Um, and so for, for me, it's the or biggest... Or the small area is good enough for you. You know what I mean? Yeah, you can, you, make you, a lot you of can money. definitely make that choice. I too. always, I but, always, I have two things I always say. You know, why do the products get made that get made by Silicon Valley and why do they get funded? And it has it's a lot to do with the people who make them and the lives they live. And so I always say San Francisco is assisted living for millennials because they the things they make are all about like make do you know what I mean? Like I need my food, I need my dry cleaning, I need my and it's all men. <laughs> it's all convenient. It's all around convenience. And then the second part is when I think about social media and things like that, I'm always like the reason why it's the way it is is because the people who made it never felt unsafe. If they felt unsafe, they would have made it in a different way. They would have created it and thought about it in a different way. And if you don't think globally around your products, it's a real problem. Context matters. Yeah. Um, and to me, it always just blows my mind every time I'm like, hey, do we have a Russian speaker? Of course we do. Like, yeah, you know, yeah. and it really like makes such a big difference because, you know, when you're dealing with translation, for example, right. you run into all sorts of walls when mm-hmm. you're doing context specific translation about varieties of wheat. Like, mm-hmm. The automated translation systems don't work for right, that. Of course, and so yeah. you need a lot of Eventually human knowledge. They will. But, yes, they yeah. will. Mm-hmm. but that, for them to do that, you mm-hmm. need the human knowledge that helps train that, right? right? And so to me, it's like you need to have people mm-hmm. that are a part of that creation process that mm-hmm. are constantly kind of providing that feedback mm-hmm. to, to do so. So what's your ambition to take this to? I mean, did you buy land? Have you bought land yet? No, no land. I built a company instead. I decided I'll have another headache. <laughs> I don't see you as a farmer. I'm no. sorry. <laughs> you, you'd on be a surprised. Tractor. You a would tractor. be surprised how much time I spend I on farmland. Tra- yes, I know you do, but on the tractor. I on the you. tractor, actually, yeah, I'm yeah. a little small for that. Yeah. Um, no, our ambition is how do we become the industry standard, mm-hmm. right? Like, so to us, how like, would you compare yourself? Like a what? That's the best part. Right. We don't have a what. Right. And yeah. it, in some ways, it's the brilliance of what we do, and it's also the complexity of what mm-hmm. we do. Um, mm-hmm. And when we were initially raising money, you know, everyone wants to know the what for what. Right. And right. I'm like, 
I don't have anything for you. I'm right. literally trying to build something that I think the system needs right. and I think the world needs. And, you know, in some ways we're data infrastructure and people kind of relate us to a Bloomberg. But mm-hmm. we're not because mm-hmm. we're not dealing with just financial services. Right. And we're also have we have a data science layer. Mm-hmm. In other ways, we are a search engine, mm-hmm. uh, but we're just a highly contextualized search right. engine. That's a really for data. good way of putting it. That's and so, you know, it's it's kind of this this mix um, mm-hmm. of of different inspirations but mm-hmm. but ultimately uh, our creation process was just like what does the world need, need. i mean need. when i quit my job mm-hmm. i didn't quit my job to say i started i'm starting a tech company i quit my job and i said there is this really big problem i need to solve and my boss is like what exactly are you going to do and at right. the time i mean he just reminded me of of what my write-up was and mm-hmm. he was like I think you should just take a sabbatical because this ah. is not going to be a company oh wow because uh, it was so small and how it was like how did you explain like, so- to venture capitalists and by the way you're one of the few young women CEOs yeah um, well so at first I didn't need to explain it to venture capitalists okay. um, right. I think I started from a very a place of what I call a place of privilege that mm-hmm. I had to work for, mm-hmm. but I was relatively successful on Wall Street mm-hmm. I'd been there for about nine years mm-hmm. um, and after I quit um the people I quit on mm-hmm. were the first few million dollars into the company. Wow. Um, and so the those individuals really, they were like, I have no idea what you're trying to do, but I'm in. Mm-hmm. Um, and so as soon as I was ready to raise money, they were kind of the first money in. And then since then, we've raised about $40 million. Mm-hmm. And there we raised from highly institutional, very global funds. So the mm-hmm. way we did describe it is we went to, you know, TPG Growth is, is a backer of mm-hmm. ours, Data Collective. So we, we got some really you good. went to the right people. We went to, but they really understood the problem. Yeah. And they were okay with a business that from day one had really global ambitions, mm-hmm. which is Difficult to kind of explain. Where but do you live? Where do you, you? You're in. We're in New York, right? Uh, and in Kenya. And you're not in California. No. Yeah. So we're in uh, Nairobi and, and New York. That's the perfect. A very, place to be. You know, <laughs> a perfect combination. Did you imagine you could do this from Silicon Valley, which is where many of these kind of companies are created? Not your kind of company. Never wanted to move there. Why? I don't know. You know, like I loved New York. Mm-hmm. I'd lived here, and then. At the heart of what I was trying to do was also be reconnected to home. And for me, definition Mm -hmm. of home was not just Ethiopia. It was anywhere in Africa. Mm -hmm. And so I found Kenya, moved there, started an office. I mean, I knew three people when I started the company there Um, and just figured, you know, it's it's about time the world kind of sees a different kind of company. And I think we could do it differently. And I believe this is a a big topic. I want to finish up on this. not just because you're a woman, a person of color, but it's beyond that. It's that there's talent. Ever the talent. One of the things that I was struck by someone recently said it's not a question of talent; it's a question of opportunity. You know, and finding companies. And I just, you know, Steve Case and all the Mark Cuban, they're all trying to get find talent everywhere in this country necessarily. But I was like, there's global talent everywhere, and the ability to get capital to those people to think up new ideas and fresh things has been incredibly hard based on no data. What's so, you know what I mean? Like that's what's so irritating about it is this sort of monoculture that gets created in entrepreneurship. I mean, I th- in some ways, I think that's why I feel a deep sense of responsibility to mm-hmm. make this company successful. One, right. because it shouldn't be on your shoulders. Everything. Yeah, no, but uh, but but I but I do because I a I deeply care about the problem. Right. Like again, it was a problem, and then technology mm-hmm. became a solution. Right. As opposed to the other way right. around, which Got is we built this thing, yeah. and we need to find a home for it. But the the second part being that it's it's that I think the more examples you have, mm-hmm. the more normal it becomes. Mm-hmm. And and so it becomes, you know, like who who were the people that were my role models that made me feel confident to do what I'm doing? Mm-hmm. It's if you do a little bit of that over time, I think it just 
naturally changes. Hopefully. It's really interesting because diversity is the natural way to go when you want success. You know what I mean? In farming and anything kind of stuff. And it's really interesting to me that we still have a monoculture around cap capital and, and where it's put. And it's it seems so analog to me that they do it this way. And you know it's you know what I mean? Like the data doesn't show this, but they don't continue they continue to be. It's just interesting. Yeah. I, I mean it's one of these things that I think I think of our journey, I think of my journey and my t- my two co-founders. Um you know, it's like all of us I think started, like I said, from a place where we had enough confidence and right. we were not absolutely. like right out of college. No, absolutely. And I think that helps. Right. I mean, I don't I have no idea like what that would have been if I tried to do this right out of college. Right. Probably wouldn't have worked. Yeah. Wouldn't have worked because the first few million I wouldn't have known the people I ended up knowing right. <laughs> backed the company in right. very, very yeah. early days. You know, you first need that just very first chance, right? right? And I think if you prove yourself there, yeah, then it just becomes like significantly easier. But the question is how do we get capital people with capital to trust different people? You know what I mean? Like they'll give millions of dollars to a 22-year-old guy. You know they you know they will. They'll just do it. But it's really fascinating to me. And I, you know I had a very interesting argument with someone yesterday where we were talking about immigration and its impact on tech and they were going on about HB1 visas. I'm like not the people that will help you do what you're already doing. I said, "Do you know where innovation's going to come from?" You don't, like necessarily. And I said, I would bet there's a little girl on that border in one of those things that maybe has a cure for cancer or maybe, like, would create the next trillion-dollar company, but she'll never get the chance. Like, why are we bad at, like, allocating capital to talent? Why is it such a bad system? Finding people is, is a lot of work. And, yes. You no, know, I know. It's but like, it's just – It's one of these things. No, it's, right. listen, I, 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 but, but that's why I truly say, like, the more of me there are – Yeah the more it becomes like people also say, I, guess, I can I can look at that, I can relate to that, and mm-hmm. I can do it too, right? There's, yes, like, that's there's true. a lot I got of that. like I get... the confidence that people lack in themselves. I just too. think they're so stupid. Um, but lastly, how do you as a leader, you're an entrepreneur, I always ask entrepreneurs this, what is the thing that you think you did really well? And is an advice to people to for entrepreneurs. And what did you do that you like, oh I shouldn't have done it that way. And I did you know what did I do really well? <laughs> um, what do you do really? What do I do really well? Oh, what, what makes me happy or what do I do really well? Um, I think what I do really well is sell the vision of the company and sell mm-hmm. the product. Um, mm-hmm. And I do that really well because it comes from a really like honest place mm-hmm. um, and a passionate place. Mm-hmm. And that what I do really well is product as mm-hmm. a result because I'm constantly, you know, every interaction, every conversation I have, I'm like my brain is like firing in 10,000 directions. Mm-hmm. I'm trying to think of like what I would have done I differently. I am flawless. Like, <laughs> I'm Beyonce. Uh, <laughs> she has a song called Flawless. Yes, I uh, But uh, you're you're with. I'm it. aware of Beyonce. I've heard of her. I've heard tell of her. <laughs> um, no, I think sometimes uh, what, one thing that is hard to do as an entrepreneur is mm-hmm. when your vision seems so crazy, mm-hmm. you learn to tame it down at yeah. times to just kind of manage your own expectations yeah. versus kind of being like. No, this is what it is. This is what it is. I've had to learn that skill. Mm-hmm. And I think part of it is that, you know, when you work on Wall Street, I was a trader. You make money, you lose money. Mm-hmm. I'm always hedging for the downside. Right. I'm always assuming yeah. that, you know, a journey is not linear. Mm-hmm. And so therefore, the highs oh, can never be as high and the lows can never be as low. Yeah, How do you point. kind of build this consistency? And so as a result, what you end up happening, doing is like managing that sort of trajectory yeah. right. in a way that, you know, as an entrepreneur and as a visionary – is not necessarily what you get rewarded for. Right, right, right. Uh, right. And so I've learned that over right. time. 
But you see, I like start to just say, no, I'm right the whole time. <laughs> I see it. You do not. <laughs> you know, it takes a few months of like losing money month after month and your manager being like, are you sure you like that position? And yeah. you're like, I'm pretty certain I do, but yeah. I'm going to go and puke right now. Yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> I'd never be a trader. I'd be the worst trader. <laughs> and and you literally like trader. have to kind of decide yeah. what your convictions are yeah. and you have to live through that. Right. But that also means that in those moments, if you become a miserable person every time you're losing money and you're right. only happy when you're making money, you're kind of a net net that miserable is a human fair being. Point. <laughs> so. But you know, entrepreneurism does take a leap. Absolutely. And this just this morning I had an idea and someone was pushing back and I'm like, no, you're wrong. I'm completely right. I don't want to listen to a word you're saying. Anyway, it was interesting. This has been a pleasure, Sarah. Uh I just think I hope great success with this company. You're one of the most interesting entrepreneurs I've met in a long time. Thank you. And, and the kind of spirit you have is exactly what we need more of uh, throughout Silicon Valley and tech and data and everything else. Anyway, thank you so much for coming on my show. This is Sarah Manker. She's the CEO of Grow Intelligence, which helps its data about farming and, and making sense of it. Uh, thank you for coming on the show. You can follow me on Twitter at Kara Swisher. My executive producer, Erica Anderson, is at Erica America. My producer, Eric Johnson, is at Hey Hey ESJ. Sarah, where can people find you and Grow Intelligence online? People can find us on Twitter at, at Grow Intel, G-R-O Intel. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm at Sarah Menker, and um, we're pretty active publishers on LinkedIn. Yeah, publishers of data? Uh, of content. Content. Oh, great. We publish tons of free content. What about is your latest? Sort of like, <laughs> the avocado. <laughs> the avocado. No, the latest has been driven around actually market moves driven by U.S. government uh, releases that shocked markets and drove market prices into a you know, downward spiral over mm-hmm. the last week. All right. Um, so very much focused around climate in the U.S., mm-hmm. government reports that don't make sense, and... Uh, and how we fix that. Cool. Well, we'll look for those. <laughs> if you like this episode, we really appreciate it if you shared it with a friend. And make sure to check out our other podcasts, Recode Media and Land of the Giants. Just search for them in your podcasting app of choice. Thanks also to our editor, Joel Robbie. Thanks for listening to this episode of Recode Decode. I'll be back here on Friday. Tune in then. Hey, this is Scott Galloway, author, professor, entrepreneur, and most importantly, host of the Prop G podcast. We got a special series running on right now called The Future of Work, where I answer all your questions on, surprise, The Future of Work. Questions including, what are we missing when we work remotely? Or how do we handle work-life balance when a major opportunity comes knocking? From the provocative to the technical, we're offering insights you won't want to miss. So tune in to The Future of Work, a Pod special sponsored by Canva. You can find it on the Pod wherever you get your podcasts.